Can I add to the welcome that Rodney gave to you and thank those for taking part this evening, those you can see and singing and doing music, those at the back that we're reliant on. If they switch off my microphone, I'll be struggling. Those doing the screen. And so many people are involved in welcoming and all sorts of different things. Can I remind you as well uh, that you'll see in the bulletin there are meetings this week on Tuesdays and Thursdays in various homes as uh, the elders and members of the pastoral team will be sharing something about uh, the vision we have for the future as a church. And uh, uh, these are not restricted to members. The members meeting is, that's later in the month. And if you're interested in becoming a member, being part of the chapel family, simply means that you love the Lord Jesus Christ, want to be involved here in Edinburgh with us. Uh, we'd be delighted there's a meeting next Sunday um, after the morning service. But uh, simply, if you go along to one of those locations, we'll be sharing with you, praying together. We need feedback so that we hear what you're saying as a congregation because we believe that the church is composed of all the people and therefore we need your input and to share the vision as God moves us forward. So let's just come to God's word now. Let's just pray and ask God to help us. I need God's help and you need God's help as well. So let's pray together. Lord, in the dark world in which we live and the darkened minds which we possess, we seek the light of your presence, the light that your Holy Spirit brings us. He shines truth and illuminates our hearts and minds. Help us, Heavenly Father, to understand more completely who you are, what you've done in the past, and what you're doing today and what to do in our lives. So encourage us and help us, we pray, and challenge us. Help us not to be those who just hear your word, those who put it into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a little quiz to begin with <clears throat> for those who know the Bible. If you don't, don't feel at all embarrassed because those who do may even get the wrong answer. Okay, which of these characters is the odd one out? Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Elijah. Okay, think for a minute, then I'm going to ask you to press your keypads. <laughs> no, we don't have them yet in Charlotte Chapel, although, well, no, the budget won't stretch that far. But uh... Okay, we'll just take a vote by hand then, all right? Okay, if you, if you think you know the answer, just raise your hand if you think Abraham is the odd one out. <clears throat> Don't look at other people. Come on, choose yourself. Choose you this day. Right, Abraham. No, nobody for Abraham. Well, you might be caught out here. Moses. Rahab. Elijah. Well, nobody said the first two. Few people said the last one. But the most popular guess was Rahab. And I guess the reason for that is pretty obvious. She's a woman, all the rest were men. She was a Gentile, a non-Jew, and all the rest belonged to the people of Israel. And she was a prostitute. A person of doubtful moral repute, while all the rest were known for their spiritual character. All very good reasons, but you're wrong. The correct answer is Elijah. For my quiz, all right. <laughs> well, why Elijah? Well, if you've been with us on Sunday evenings, we've been making our way uh, through a chapter in a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. This is in the second half of the Bible. There's Hebrews. So, if, you, if you've got a Bible, turn to a Bible and look at page 1,209.
take my cloak. It's very hot in here, isn't it? I think it is anyway. Um, <clears throat> this, this letter is called the Letter to the Hebrews because surprisingly it was written to people that were Hebrews. That is, from a Jewish background, they come to faith in Jesus, but times have got tough and they were tempted to give up and go back to their old religion. And, and this letter is written to encourage them just to keep going. We've chosen a title for it, and you can hear the rest of the series, uh, 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 you can download it off the internet, or get tapes of it if you're interested. We've called the series, Living by Faith. Keep on trusting God. And by way of encouragement, to try and encourage them, the writer looks back into the first part of our Bible, which are the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, and he tells them about all sorts of people from the past who lived by faith and kept going and didn't give up. And if you look at Hebrews 11, uh, there's a lot about Abraham. He's there. Verse 11, Abraham, by faith. 17, Abraham. If you turn over the page, page 1210, we come to Moses. A lot about Moses. Verse 23, by faith, Moses' parents. Then Moses, verse 24, right down to verse 28. But if you keep looking down, and we haven't come quite to the end of the series yet, you'll find that Elijah is not in the series because by the time the writer got down to verse um, 32, he says, what more shall I say? I don't have any more time. Which preachers often say, but then they go on a bit longer. And that's what he does. But he kind of summarizes some different people, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And Elijah was one of the prophets. In fact, he was the greatest prophet of all. But surprisingly... Rahab is in the list. Can you see her there in verse 31? So what I want to say this evening for the person of my quiz, that Rahab is not the odd man out, she's the odd woman in. Alright, let's look at what it says about her. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Hebrews 11, verse 31. So what I want you to do this evening is look at why she's included. Because I think you're going to find it amazingly encouraging. Especially if you don't have a very high view of yourself. So the title we've chosen, you'll see why, is Faith and Action. And the background to this is the chapter that was read for a great drama reading for other guys down there, thank you, uh, in Joshua 2 and then the end of the story in Joshua chapter 6. And all I'm going to say is three very important things, but very simple things about Rahab. And you can work these out for yourself uh, quite easily. Okay, three things about Rahab. First of all, Rahab is the woman God used. The woman God used. The inclusion of Rahab in the annals of faith is, to say the least, surprising. So much later that when scribes, you know the Bible originally, they didn't have printing in the old days, you know? when the Bible was written, they copied it by hand. And so when scribes came to copy it, there's one or two manuscripts of the New Testament where a scribe has added the words, so-called. By faith Rahab, the so-called prostitute. Uh, and other people have changed it and put it and said, well, it, it doesn't really mean prostitute, it means innkeeper. By faith Rahab the innkeeper. Sounds much better than prostitute, doesn't it, really? But there's really no mistake because the Greek word that's used here is a word that you'll know 
because it said a lot about these days, it's the word, for evil, it's the word porne, from which we get pornography, which means what's written that's evil. So, she's a very surprising inclusion in the annals, in this roll call of faith. In his little book on, on Hebrews, R.T. Kendall used to be the pastor at Westminster Chapel, London. He's got a little book, it's out of print now, called Who By Faith? And this is what he writes. Whatever else could be said about Israel's first battle in the land of Canaan, none could ever escape the knowledge that in Israel's pivotal and crucial moment of history in her land, God used an unpatriotic prostitute to ensure Israel's safety and security. Now, if you are here last week when Colin was speaking, uh, was it last week or the week before, two weeks ago, we focused on the battle of Jericho. Uh, by faith, verse 30, if you're back in Hebrews, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. But now the writer sort of back skips a little bit and then skips forward because he's going to tell us about Rahab's story and the fact that when the walls fell flat, she alone and her family were rescued and saved. Uh, the story is very simple and we heard it read so well for us. Uh, there's a sense of deja vu for Joshua when he comes to the promised land. Why? Because 40 years before, he'd been at the same spot with all the people of Israel. They'd come out of Egypt, got to the promised land, and Joshua was chosen as one of the 12 spies who went to spy out the land of Canaan. One from each of the 12 tribes. And they went and saw the land of Canaan and said, it's a great place, but there's no way we can take it because the people are giants and we should just turn back. If you went to Sunday school, you used to sing a great chorus about this. Twelve spies went to spy in Canaan. Ten were, ten were bad, two were good. If you didn't sing this, never mind. But anyway, it's a great, great chorus. Now, here they are. They've wandered around for 40 years till every one of their generation has died. It's a new generation. New opportunity. So Joshua sends not 12 spies, but two. And the very first place, the first obstacle, once they cross the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, is the great wall city of Jericho. I think there should be a map of it there, over the river Jordan. Now we know that the people of, the whole people of Canaan and the people who lived in the city of Jericho had heard about the Israelites and this vast army of immigrants who were massing on their borders. I would imagine there would have been a high state of security and alert in the city. Couldn't have been very easy for these two men. Maybe they just slipped into the city. There were no welcome to Jericho signs. There was no open-top chariot tour of Jericho for them to go and have a look around and see what was where. So where could these two men stay? Could they find someone who might be sympathetic to their cause? Well, Joshua 2, the verse, first verse that we heard, tells us, So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. We don't know why they chose her house. One would imagine that most, if not all, of the doors were closed to them. But the important point as you read the story is to recognise what theologians call God's providence is at work. At least God's plan is being carried out in the background to this story. It was no stroke of fortune that brought them to this particular house. The home, and more importantly, its owner, Rahab, 
had been chosen and prepared by God. Rahab was not only a surprising person, but we discover that she possessed a surprising faith for someone from that city and background. Over a hundred years ago, C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, preached a sermon on this. And this is what he said, it's still very true. He said, if we could have taken a bird's eye view of the city of Jericho and had been informed that there was one believer there, I warrant you, we would have not have looked in Rahab's house. She would have been about the last person we should have supposed had been a possessor of faith in the true God. And yet, that is what she was. For long before these men arrived in the city, certainly months before, if not years before, her heart and mind had been prepared by God. As the story clearly tells us, her faith didn't just suddenly emerge when these men knocked on her door. No, it began all those years before. You see, faith always begins with this, hearing what the Lord has done. Notice what she says, it's in Joshua 2.10. She says to the men, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Now, all the people had heard that, but her faith went further. It's not just hearing what the Lord has done. Secondly, it's recognising who the Lord is. This is what she goes on to say in verse 11 of Joshua 2. She says, When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. She recognised that the God they worship was the one true God. Now again, all the people perhaps felt similarly or certainly their faith in their own gods was in some doubt. But Rahab's faith led to a third and vital step in seeking the Lord's salvation. So she says to the men, verses 12 and 13 of Joshua 2, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to me and my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. By the time the spies got to her house, she was prepared to risk everything for her newfound faith in order to save her life. She was willing to risk all. She could have been an overnight heroine in Jericho simply by reporting these two men to the authorities. Instead, she lied, we may ask questions about that, to protect them and save their lives, and through her, Israel gained a victory. She was prepared to risk all on the basis of what she believed to put her faith into action by protecting the two spies. Very interesting, isn't it? If you've been here in our morning series in the book of James, which we've called Faith at Work, same kind of theme that we've been looking at morning and evening, we actually find that James also quotes Rahab. First of all, he talks about Abraham's faith. And then amazingly, he talks about, of all the people in the Bible, Rahab, about faith in action. This is what he says. In the same way as Abraham, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction as the body Without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James 2, 25 and 26. Even Rahab, James writes, even an immoral Canaanite woman 
is used by God. And I simply want to say at this point, very obviously, but you may not believe it, even Rahab means there is hope for everyone. Who knows what's in your background? Who knows what kind of life you're living? You may actually look very respectable at front, but there may be all sorts of things in your life that are in a mess. Things you'd be ashamed of if you put them on the big screen behind us. You may have come in off the street and you've never been here before. You may say, well, I'm not the kind of person God can use. Uh, All these respectable folk in Charlotte Chapel, well, I feel a bit out of place here. But I simply say, even Rahab means there is hope for everyone. The question is, have you heard what God has done? Have you recognized who he is? And are you seeking his salvation? You see, it is so often the unlikely people that God uses. The unlikely people like Rahab who are willing to risk all. And I simply ask you, first of all, in my first point, are you one of them? Have you put your faith into action? If so, and only so, will you experience the second thing that we learn about Rahab from this story. She's the woman that God used, but notice secondly, she's the woman that God saved. A bit of background. Rahab was a Canaanite by birth. Uh, The name Canaanite was a kind of loose term to describe the people of the region known as Canaan. They lived in sort of small groups of semi-autonomous kingdoms or city-states. They spoke a common language. There are around seven major groupings of the Canaanites. And whenever you read the Bible, you often read things like the the Hittites, the Perizzites, uh, the Hivites, and all the Jebusites, the names of all these different groupings. They're all part of the land of Canaan. They were a culture that was advanced, moral, uh, advanced materially and culturally. We know from archaeological excavations and ancient texts which have been discovered and translated that their cities were well built with strong fortifications, they had systems of drainage, tunnels to pipe in water at time of siege, they had fine houses, they were great traders, they exported timber and textiles to Egypt, Syria, Mesopotamia and Belong. Technologically and materially, culturally, they were far more advanced than this nomadic group of people who were about to enter into their land. These ex-slaves known as the Israelites. But, along with the fact that they were culturally advanced, in terms of religion, that is their response to the one true God who had revealed himself in creation and was known in their conscience, they were morally depraved. I won't go into details to save embarrassment in Charlotte Chapel. But they worshipped a whole host of gods, goddesses of nature and fertility. They practiced gross idolatry, religious prostitution. They dabbled in the occult arts and they even sacrificed children to their gods. And living like this, therefore, as the Israelites come to Canaan, here are a group of people who are living under God's judgment. They were living under God's judgment. But you need to notice something else very interesting as well as you read the Bible because you can read this chapter like Joshua 6 and think, gosh, what a terrible story. The Israelites went in and wiped out all these people. What kind of God is that? What kind of God would do that? Well, the answer is a very patient God. An extremely patient God. If you go right back in the Bible's history... The people of Israel began with a man who God called out of idolatry. His name was Abraham. And Abraham was called 
And he arrived in this same land of Canaan, where these people were living, all their forebears long, long before, only 25 bears, however many generations back it was. And God made a promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, you and your descendants, you're going to inherit this land of Canaan. You're living, Abraham lived and died as a landless nomad, wandering around living in tents. But not yet, said God. Why not? Well, it's very important verses in Genesis 15, 13 to 16. <clears throat> Notice carefully what it says. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. They will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. That was when they were slaves in Egypt. This has not happened yet, of course. God's telling them, you're going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. Afterwards, you'll come out with great possessions. You, however, Abraham, you'll go to your fathers in peace, be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Why? For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached it's full measure. Amorites is another word for Canaanites. The Lord says to Abraham, you're going to inherit this land, but not yet, because the sin of its inhabitants has not yet reached its full measure. God waited patiently for these people to change their ways. Very patiently. How long did he wait? We can't be precise, but the time from the promise to Abraham to the time of the Israelites going into Canaan under Joshua, was probably around 600 years. But God waited patiently. You see, just let me say something by the by. No nation owns its land. That's not politically correct, but it's theologically correct. Every nation is a steward of land given by God. Why? Because the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God. God gives people land and expects them to live in a way that pleases Him. If they do not, God removes them from it eventually and gives it to someone else. He even did it with His own people, Israel. Gave them the land eventually, you know. They disobeyed the Lord and first the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in and they lost the land at that time. So God was extremely patient. He waited for these people, giving them an opportunity for 600 years to change their ways. Yet they persisted in their sin, refusing to repent. That is to turn back and turn to the one true God. And that was not all. When the Israelites left Egypt and advanced into Canaan, we know from Rahab's words that all the people in the region heard what God had done and were filled with fear. And yet, despite all this, they refused to submit to God. In one sense, when the Israelites marched around Jericho seven times, blowing their trumpets, it was last chance saloon for the people to repent and change their ways. Our verse in Hebrews says something very interesting about them. It says, Rahab was not killed with those who were disobedient. If you look at the NIV, you'll see a little footnote at the bottom of the page there. The word says, or unbelieving. The Greek word unbelieving has two parts. They literally mean not convinced or not persuaded. It refers to a person who you give them all the evidence they need to come to a conclusion, yet they stubbornly will not change their minds. I've made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. That kind of person. 
It means someone who's implacably obstinate, no matter how convincing the evidence. And that is what the inhabitants of Jericho and Canaan were like. After centuries of refusing to repent, they are now faced with final evidence of God's power and a final warning, yet they persist. They refuse to believe. And I simply tell you, it's a very sober theme, really. God is extremely patient, but not eternally patient. God is extremely patient, but not eternally patient. And eventually, finally, after centuries of patience and opportunity, God's patience ran out. They refused to repent, they refused to believe, until it was too late. So what happens when, that, when a nation or a person reaches that point? Well, God sends judgment. And God's judgment at this time came in the form of the Israelite people who were about to inherit this land. The instrument of justice was to be the Israelites. Now, if you know anything about contemporary warfare from this time, you'll know it's a pretty gruesome experience. The things nations did to one another when they conquered one another. Extremely painful and pleasant. The most hideous torture. The conquest of Canaan is unique in the annals of warfare because the Lord said to the Israelites, He said, You are not to loot, you are not to pillage, there is to be no torture, there is to be no rape. It is to be a clinical judgment on behalf of God. And the Bible has a special word, it's a Hebrew word. God says, Everything in this city belongs to me, it is devoted to me. It's a special word translated devoted, you can't really translate it to English, but it means it's holy, it's set apart for God. And that was the method of warfare. You see, God said the contamination, the depravity was so complete and all pervasive that every living thing, young and old, animal and human, was to be destroyed. It belonged to God. And if you read on in the story of Joshua, you discover that when the Israelites broke God's command in this respect, they too suffered God's judgment. Now, you may pause at this point and say, well, I don't like that kind of God. I simply say to you, well, what are you going to do? Invent another one that you do like? We need to take seriously that God is a God of justice. That his patience sometimes does run out with us as individuals. We should not presume upon God's mercy and his patience. But here's the note of encouragement. Rahab was exempted from judgment. Look at our verse again. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. The two spies whom she protected promised their protection when the city of Jericho fell, providing she obeyed their instructions. It's a dramatic story. These great big thick walls, these walls they built in those days were so thick and so wide, you could drive a chariot along the top of them. And she had a house built into the wall. And she let them down out of the city by this scarlet cord or rope. And, and, and the spy said, when we come, you put your family in your house. If they go outside, we can't be responsible. But you hang this cord from the window and when we see it, your family will be preserved. An older commentator called James Moffat writes on Rahab, her practical faith shown by her friendly welcome to the spies 
which sprang from the conviction that the God of Israel was to be feared, saved her from the fate of her fellow citizens who declined to submit to the claims of Israel's God. Not only was Rahab saved, but all of her family who remained in her house was similarly protected from destruction. Now, to me that's a tremendous challenge to all of us and to our families, some of whom don't know Christ. How she persuaded them, we don't know. But they crowded into her home on that final day when the army of Israel marched around Jericho on the seventh day, seven times. The walls fell flat. They individually had to respond to what she said to them and availed themselves of the protection offered. Otherwise, they would be killed along with the rest. You see, faith is believing God's word, accepting God's provision. We thought earlier in this series, when the angel of death passed through the city of uh, the, the land of Egypt on Passover night, only the blood, the scarlet blood of a lamb marked on the doorpost could save the people of Israel. And when Jericho fell, it was the scarlet cord which saved the pagan prostitute and her family. Now, let's just stop a moment and ask a question. What relevance does this have for us today, three and a half thousand years on? Well, first of all, we're not living three and a half thousand years ago. I think you will work that out. And perhaps you say, thank goodness we don't live in those days and that we don't ask Charlotte Chapel after this to go out into the streets with guns or swords or, or whatever to execute God's judgment on people. Absolutely right, and I'm delighted to say so. That's true. The tragic mistake of the history of the church is when it's taken up arms. That's the tragic history of the Crusades. And for every religious war, which uses human weapons to this day, we live in a different age, what's called the New Testament or the New Covenant. Brought about by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're living under a new and better covenant. We have no mandate to kill or harm anyone. Rather, what you do is Jesus told us, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Luke 6, 27. But, while we do not have a mandate to carry out God's judgment, that does not mean that God will never carry out any judgment. It just means it's not our responsibility to do it. No, the Bible says that all humanity of every ethnic group on earth is living under God's judgment. Great is the darkness that covers the earth. That's why I chose the song before we turn to this word. All of us have sinned and missed the mark. None of us have any excuse. All of us face God's just judgment because of the way that we live in rebellion against God, refusing to repent, refusing to believe. So God would be fully justified in carrying out His judgment when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. A lot of people are going to be amazingly surprised and shocked because there is none righteous, no, not one. Some of us think God surely marks on a curve and I'm in the top half. Some of us think I'm better than most people, so surely if I'm going to get to heaven, anybody's going to get to heaven, I'm sure I'll be there. I'm not as bad as... The Bible says all have sinned. God will carry out his judgment. But, here's the good news, and I'm so pleased to turn to it. The good news is what the Christians call the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. In love and mercy, God has provided a way of escape so that we need not face his judgment, so that like Rahab, we can be the Bible cause. It's saved. Not from soldiers, but from God's eternal wrath. 
So listen to the words of Jesus. You know them so well. Best known verse in the Bible. We've turned to them so often in the series. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Think Jericho. Think eternity. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God has made a way of salvation by which our sin can be forgiven and we need not perish but have eternal life. But you must avail yourself of it by trusting in Christ. This is what the Gospel's about. And I simply ask you, have you ever done that? Are you living this evening? All of us in this church this evening are either living under God's judgment or we're experiencing God's salvation. There's no middle course. Jesus bore the judgment that you and I deserve when he hung on the cross. Through faith in him you can be saved. Faith is not merely intellectual assent to some kind of propositions. It is complete commitment to the one who made the claims. Risking all for him as Rahab did. That is the faith which saves. Now the only other alternative to faith is not doubt, it's unbelief. It is a refusal to believe what God has done. To put your trust in him. John 3, 16 is very well known. Here's John 3, 36, the last verse of what Jesus said. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The word reject is the same word as Hebrews 11, verse 31, disobedient, rejecting. It is the person who will not believe, will not be persuaded, despite all the evidence of the country. Now, maybe this evening you're not a Christian. If you've been coming to this church, I do hope you understand clearly what this is about. It's the most important thing of all. You may have grown up in this church, but unless you put your faith in Christ, then you render God's wrath and judgment. You're without excuse. You won't be able to say that I just, well, Lord, I, I just didn't know anything about it. And here's the more serious news. Yet we live in a greater age with a greater salvation. But there is a consequence of that. That is, if we reject it, the judgment of God is far greater than for the Canaanites. Do you know that? The book of Hebrews makes this very interesting point. If you read this book, it's quite a difficult book to understand Hebrews. But it's basically saying everything in Christ is better than the old covenant which is why it's written to these Hebrews, and say, why would you go back to something worse? Christ is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than those priests. He's better than the greatest high priest. He's better than David. He's better than the Lord, because we live under a better covenant. But he says, if the people pre-Christ were judged severely because they rejected God's word, how much more will we be judged for rejecting a greater salvation? Do you remember what Jesus said? Frightening words. He said to the people in his day, he said, it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. The two cities which sort of symbolized evil were wiped out. And Jesus said to the people, it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than those people in Tyre and Sidon, two other great evil cities. Why? Because you've got so much better on offer. All the evidence is there. A greater way of salvation is provided through Jesus, which means greater judgment for those who reject him. Greater salvation means greater judgment. Here's a verse from Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect, ignore such a great salvation? So I have great news for you. 
Salvation is offered through Jesus Christ. I have a serious warning for you. You reject it, you'll come under God's judgment. Not just physical death. Friends, frankly, it doesn't matter whether you get knocked over by a bus or die of old age in your bed. The book of Hebrews says, appointed unto men wants to die and after that judgment. And only believing in God's word and putting your trust in Christ will ensure your salvation. This is, this is why it's such a serious matter. The people of Jericho refused to repent. They refused to believe and were judged. Rahab accepted God's word, accepted God's provision and was saved. She was the woman God used, the woman God saved. Finally, much more briefly, coming to the end. She was the woman God blessed. What does that mean? It means that she experienced God's favour. That's what blessing means. It means God's favour rests on top of you. His love is shown to you. You see, Jericho and all within it were destroyed. Only Rahab and her family were saved. So what happened after the battle was over? Was Rahab and her family sent packing? Were they put into a separate cultural enclave? And Israel established a multi-faith society? Not at all. Rahab had a far greater future. First of all, she experienced a change of status. Joshua 6 records at the end of the battle this. Verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with all her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. She became a full member of God's chosen people. She was brought in, not put out. The last person whose faith is described in detail in Hebrews 11 is a non-Jew by birth. Perhaps a foretaste of what will happen with Christ when the Gentiles are grafted into God's people and the kingdom of heaven is open to all believers regardless of your ethnic background. The Apostle Paul writing to Christians in Ephesus. Ephesus was the centre of occult power in the ancient world. Looking at some pictures when we visited it with some friends last night again. Just an amazing place. But it was a centre of occult practice. And the gospel came to this place not with a sword, a man called Paul and a few friends walked through the city gates and stood in the streets and began to tell people about Jesus. Now, there was a riot in the city, but people responded to his message. And writing his letter to the Ephesians, he says, And you also, these are Gentiles, idol worshippers, former occult practitioners, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, here's the wonderful thing when you become a Christian. You're included into God's family and he gives you the family likeness because he puts his Holy Spirit to come and live within you. To make you what you can never be. You see, you may say, I'd love to be a Christian, but I just couldn't live up to it. Of course you couldn't. It's impossible. That's why God gives you his spirit. Why Jesus said it's like being born again. God comes to live within you by his spirit. Your part is to repent and believe. His part, which is promised, to give you his spirit. And so you're included in Christ. You become part of Christ's family. That's not an occasion for boasting. It's just an occasion for kind of like Rahab, amazement. Fancy it. Who'd ever thought that I'd have been part of God's family? Amazing grace. You know, John Newton wrote that. It wasn't, it wasn't hyperbole. You know, that's a great poem. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was a wretch. He was a slave trader. Traded in people. He lived a terrible life if you read the story. He was called to be a minister of the gospel and he sat down one day and he wrote this hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And if you're a genuine Christian, 
You're just an amazed person that you're here this evening and that you're part of Christ's family. If you're thinking to yourself, well, of course I am, I deserve it. God's going to choose anybody, surely look out for me. You've totally never understood the gospel. But when the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, what happens? Well, he's the Holy Spirit, so he produces holy living. So Rahab not only experienced a change of status, there was also a change of lifestyle. What did she do when she came into Israel? Can I put it politely, friends? Did she open a brothel in Israel? (laughs) No way. Her life changed. She's grafted into God's people and lived in a way that pleased God. You see, sometimes people say things with only half a truth in them. They say, well, you know, when Jesus was on earth, he mixed with outcasts. Quite right. He mixed with people like tax collectors who were outcasts. He mixed with prostitutes. Yes, he did. And they said, you remember that story when Jesus, that woman was brought in who committed adultery and they were going to stone her to death. And Jesus said, let him without sin throw the first stone. And everybody walked out from the oldest to the youngest one by one. And in the end, there's only Jesus and the woman left. And Jesus said, where are those people who have condemned you? No one, she said. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Read on. Now, he said, go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. And that is what Rahab did. God turned to shame into glory. And that's what God should be doing in our lives. If we're generally born again in the Spirit of God, should be producing radical change in our lives. Making us holy, like God. Like Jesus. But there's one other change, I'm almost finished, that Rahab experienced. One that she never dreamt of. And one whose fulfilment she didn't finally see. Because she also experienced a change of destiny. See, Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Here in Hebrews, and in James that we've been studying in the mornings, but there's one other incredible place she's mentioned, which is almost certainly not your favourite life verse. And it's probably not a chapter you read very often. If you start right at the beginning of the New Testament, there's what's called a genealogy. It traces the descendants of Jesus through Joseph, right through the generations, beginning right at the beginning, right at the present day. And it bears study because you think this is still the word of God. If you read it carefully, there are four women mentioned in it. I don't have time to tell you about them all. All of them are women of doubtful reputation or origin. And among them is Rahab, the ancestor of King David. Matthew 1, 5 and 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz. You can just skip over this when you read the Bible. It's saying something to us. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's the other one. Another woman is mentioned. Doubtful reputation. Wow. She was a descendant, a direct descendant of Israel's greatest King David and his son, King Solomon. But here's something more incredible. The list finally concludes with one far greater. It's the end of this great genealogy. Read it when you get home. It'll help you to sleep. If nothing else, you read all those names, all right? And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, Messiah. Just imagine. God's got this incredible plan of salvation. He's going to send his son, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one. 
to bring deliverance to his people and to be the glory of his people of Israel and to be blessing to all the nations. Now, if you were going to do that, would you include a woman like Rahab in the story? Oh, you'd say, kick her out, let's get a fine, upstanding woman in this list. But here's the wonder of the gospel. God takes a woman like Rahab and he puts her in the list. Such a thing would have amazed Rahab. On that day when she escaped for her life from the smoldering ruins of the city she had lived in all her life, Jericho. And I simply conclude by saying this to you. Who knows what God could do with your life You may not even live to see it generations down the line if Christ should tarry from his return. You see, God still takes unpromising people. And instead of making them odd men out, he makes them odd women in and odd men in. Unpromising candidates. You may be one of them. You think, no potential for me, I'm just nothing. God loves to do that to confound the way the world works. You'd started off like Jesus, looking for 12 men to choose to change the world. Believe me, you wouldn't have chose the characters that he chose. You'd have gone around the universities, the Senate, the political figures, the rich people. Jesus chose 12 very ordinary people, and one of them turned out to be a dud, and they turned the world upside down. You see, God loves to do that kind of thing. And he'd love to do that in your life too, this evening. God can use you, he can save you, and he can bless you. If, you will let him. So my final question is to you and to me. What about you? Let's pray together.